everyone, and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror podcast, podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West with... Andrea C. Bassati. And Sparkle Sparkle, we're back. <laughs> I think you put it so well last episode when you said, it's the episode nobody asked for. No one. And I, I think that's just proven to be true even truer in the weeks ensuing. We've gotten a little bit of feedback. I'm going to hazard this. I don't think we've ever gotten this much feedback on an episode we've announced before. That tells me we're doing something right. Yeah, and to be clear, we are talking about the 2008 film Twilight, and not all of the feedback, in fact, I think almost all of it, none of it was positive. None of it? I don't think so. Maybe a a couple like, oh, that could be interesting, or I'm interested to hear you guys talk about it. You're out there. I know there are some twihards out there who are like, oh my god, I don't dare admit how excited I am. Well, it's almost as if uh, our culture has, you know, taken a collective dump on this phenomenon and this film, and it's a place to put all of your rage about young women. Yup. There is a lot of feedback on this, and a lot of people, like, reaching out, and there's a lot of preconceptions yes. about this. And so when we talked about doing this episode, initially, as I mentioned um, in our last episode, it started as a joke between Andrea and I. <laughs> we were joking about it as, like, maybe we'll do a fake intro for April Fool's Day or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then we kind of kept returning to it, and it just became a bit of a, like, well— What if we actually did an episode on it? And I became more and more interested in that idea. Andrea did as well. And so here we are. And uh, I have a lot to say about this. I do too. And I don't think this episode is going to redeem this film in anyone's eyes. I don't think we're going to turn anyone into a fan with this episode. I think this is just going to be ideally a discussion that maybe takes the material in directions... We hadn't thought of before. We hadn't thought to explore. Yeah, and I think it's a good reminder. Certainly, you know, the last few weeks working on this episode, it was a really good reminder to me that I actually don't know it all. And I like that parts of my research and my viewing of this film actually surprise me. Hey. And that's nice. You know, That's you, a treat. It is a treat when you've been doing this for so long, relatively speaking, and you go in with some ideas and I left with new ideas. That's all you can hope for. And yeah. I'm extra excited because I came to Twilight a long time ago, so I've had a lot of time to kind of ruminate on my thoughts and feelings about it, and they have have shifted over the years, um, but I knew that you weren't familiar with the material, so I could not. I mean, I'm always looking forward to what you have to say when we sit down to record an episode, but this one especially. And I'm extra super excited to hear what you think about it, because you've always been, um, I think, maybe cagely defensive <laughs> of this film um, and of, of the whole phenomenon, and I think I understand that a lot more now, and I really want to hear what you have to say. Yeah, I feel like I really don't fall in one camp or another. It's all very complicated, and I think, you know, this is a movie where there are things about it that I enjoy, and there are things about it that I have to let myself enjoy, Mm -hmm. and there's a lot about it that I don't, and I just don't, and it's indefensible, and that's fine. Are we—wait, are we talking about, like— cognitive dissonance right now? Not us. 
are we are we saying that we as humans can hold multiple ideas, some of them contradictory in our heads at the same time? Let's not get crazy. All right. Okay. We'll we'll leave the woke politics for a few minutes, but we'll get back to them. So, here's 2008's Twilight. You're impossibly fast and strong. You got to give me some answers. I'd rather hear your theories. I have considered radioactive spiders and kryptonite. It's all superhero stuff, right? What if I'm not the hero? What if I'm the bad guy? You know what you are? Your skin is pale white and ice cold. You don't go out into the sunlight. Say it out loud. Say it. Vampire. Are you afraid? No. This isn't real. This kind of stuff just doesn't exist. It doesn't my world. I just want to try one thing. I don't know how long I've waited for you. What is going on? Security guard at the mill got killed by some kind of animal. An animal? My family, we're different from others of our kind. You brought a snack. What, now he's coming after me? The hunt is his obsession. He's never gonna stop. I'd rather die than to stay away from you. He's got unparalleled senses, absolutely lethal. I'll do whatever it takes to make you safe again. You're faster than the others. But not stronger. I'm strong enough to kill you. You are my life now. Teenager Bella Swan has just moved to the small town of Forks to live with her dad, who is the town's police chief. She reunites with her childhood friend Jacob, who lives on a nearby reservation, and she meets some new kids at school, including the handsome and mysterious Edward Cullen, who seems to be repulsed by her. After Edward saves Bella from a near-fatal car accident in the school parking lot, she realizes that he's not human. He admits, eventually, that his family are vampires, but only consume animal blood. Vegetarians, let's say. The pair fall in love to the concern of the rest of his family who fear being exposed. Jacob isn't happy about it either. Not only does he have a thing for Bella, but in the next movie we find out that he's a werewolf, and werewolves and vampires are mortal enemies. Duh. When a nomadic tribe of vampires come to Forks and one of them acquires a taste for Bella, he tricks her into revealing herself and the Cullens come to her rescue. Bella is bitten, but she survives, and Edward takes her to the prom, where she declares she wants to be turned into a vampire, and he refuses. But it's still romantic. It's so romantic. It's, but did that not sound romantic? romantic? It's a love story. It's star-crossed lovers, Montague and Capulet all over again. Oh, this this story has roots in so many other highfalutin pieces of art and culture that we've consumed for centuries. So, yeah, I just like that. She wants to be a vampire. He refuses. I mean, right? But it's true. You're absolutely right. She just wants to be with him so badly forever. Mm. And I actually thought that their last little chat at the prom of, you know, isn't being with me forever enough? No, dude. You're immortal. It rules. Well, I'll say this. I hadn't really engaged with the Twilight stuff before this episode. I had gone with friends to see Twilight New Moon, which is the second film in this series, when I was in my master's. Okay. 
And I went with them to see it. One of the women I went with was a big fan of the whole book series and, and really wanted to see it. Mm-hmm. And then um, my other friend, Jenny, was kind of in between our friend Denise, who was, like, hyped for it, and me being like, what the fuck is this? Right. You know, I was doing my master's at the time, so I was at the height of my pretension. Mm-hmm. I was so up my own ass, and I was laughing out loud at this movie to the point where Denise actually shushed me multiple times. Aww. And I have apologized to her personally. I would also like to apologize to her now publicly because that was shitty of me, and I shouldn't have done that mm. because she was clearly enjoying it or trying to enjoy it, and yeah. I was being a bit of an asshole. Okay. Uh, we'll talk about the sequels kind of towards the end of this episode, but I'm a 35-year-old woman, and I decided if we're going to do this episode, I needed to immerse myself in this. So I read the book, mm-hmm. and then I watched all of the movies. All of them. All of them. I'll talk a bit more about my feelings about the book, but I want to say I actually enjoyed this movie Mm. far more than I thought I would. And that moment you're referencing right now at the end, Mm -hmm. at the prom, when they go to the, like, slow dance gazebo Mm, or whatever the fuck that is. And she wants to be turned, and he, like, leans her back, and he goes to her neck, and he actually kisses it. Mm Mm-hmm. I swooned. You did? I swooned. It was hot. (laughs) It was hot. The chemistry between these two is no fucking joke. Uh, It really isn't. It was, like, they're great together. Mm -hmm. They sell it. So you read all the books and then you watched all the movies? No, I just read the first book. Okay. Because I only have so much time. No problem. Um, So the book is 500 pages. It was a bit like pulling nails. Okay. To read this book. It's obviously a very easy read. Yeah. Um, it's really slow. They don't kiss until page 300. And then the last 100 pages is the other vampire showing up, and there's a shit ton of action crammed into these last few mm-hmm, chapters. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really wasn't moved by the book. Mm-hmm. It's real awkward. In my opinion, it's not super well written, even though it is very readable. Mm-hmm. And I actually think the movie fixes a ton of problems in the book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problems I have with the film are endemic to the book. Okay. There, there's significant plot points to the book that you can't really do away with without yeah. throwing out the book. So uh, keep that in mind. But I also—I'm going to be real honest. Really? I'm going to be real honest right now. So I took out all my nails reading this book. I was losing my mind. I was like, oh, my God, just stop talking about how pretty he is and his fucking Volvo. I was just like, just stop it. And I finally finished it, and then I watched the film, and I was like, God, I'm so glad to be done this dumb book. And I was uh, going to bed, I think, the next night, and I was slightly disappointed I didn't have the other books. Okay. Like, put it to you like this. If I was the caretaker at a hotel for the winter, Mm -hmm. and I'd had that, you know, four books, uh, had them at the Overlook, I would have read them. Yeah. Probably not enjoyed them, mm-hmm. but I would have read them. You would have scratched that. Like, something got under your skin. Yeah. Something got in there. Something was happening. And, um, but yeah, I really enjoyed Twilight. The rest of the films, I was like, all right, calm down. I was slightly, very slightly right to laugh at that second film. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, it's worth mentioning that the first film was directed by Catherine Hardwick, and the rest of them were not. Uh, the first mm-hmm. film was such a hit that they went to other directors. I can't necessarily say all that more established directors. I recognize the name David Slade, but Chris Waits? Oh, um, oh, Chris Waits, yeah. Waits. So Chris Waits, he and his brother, I believe, did the American Pie films. That's it. And then I think both of 
of them did that film about a boy, which is based on the Nick Hornby book, starring mm-hmm. Hugh Grant, which I actually quite like as a film. Yeah, so he did the next film, and uh, then David Slade did the third film, and then Bill Condon, who's actually a pretty famous director. He oh. did uh, Gods and Monsters about James Whale, who who directed uh, yeah. Frankenstein. None of those live up to what I think Catherine Hardwick did with this first film. Yeah, well, I mean, it strikes me that these aren't horror people. And I don't consider Twilight a special horror movie. And I think horror fans in themselves kind of had a very knee-jerk reaction to vampires being teen romance vehicles and sparkling. And we'll get to all that. But for Catherine Hardwick, I'd seen Lords of Dogtown. And I had seen so many documentaries about uh, the early skateboarding world. I worked at a skate shop. And I'd seen so many documentaries about that. And then you see Lords of Dogtown and you see this story unfold under a director who really kind of gives it a very teenage, innocent, bright sensibility. And I see her gaze on the Twilight Mm -hmm. book as well in that the movie is very moody, it's very adolescent, and you're absolutely right. She manages to capture what good there is in that text. I was an undergrad when Twilight came out, and my eldest sister, who was in her late 20s at the time, had read the books. She was living in a different city, and she recommended them to me because she said that Bella reminded her of me, and that is Bella from the books. She told me that. I have never seen you fall down. And that's all Bella does in the books. That's all she does in the books. She's very awkward. She's very clumsy. She clearly has an undiagnosed inner ear infection or something. I am not at all clumsy. In fact, I have a background in dance and I did a ton of aerobics. I did gymnastics. I was all about the cartwheels and shit. Roller derby. I am a coordinated human being. And so I remember reading that and just being like, what the fuck, man? I'm a little bit offended. I also wasn't um, boy crazy. So I I didn't understand it. And uh, I meant to bring it up with her before we recorded. But I, I think now I have an idea that, you know, Bella was just very much an outsider in high school. She Mm -hmm. really didn't fit in with the other kids, and she set her sights on much older outsider person. She was attracted to somebody who was so completely divorced from the high school adolescent upbeat life, and that's the best I can do toward rationalizing what the fuck she was talking about. I don't think Bella was an outsider, and she's not, to me, portrayed as one. Like, all the boys want to ask her out. She finds, you know, some decent girlfriends pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. She just doesn't feel like... Like she's one of them. She feels different. Yeah, different for sure. And I think difference when you're in high school has an air of intoxicating mystery. Mm-hmm. And I get the sense of that. She's a new girl. She's showing up mid-semester. And you remember in high school when there was a new kid, it was like, oh, everybody had a crush on them immediately regardless of what they were or who they were just because they were new. Yeah. And I think, you know, indeed, you get the sense that most of the school have crushes on the Cullens as well because they are so mysterious and because they are so insular and because they are so other. Anyway, um, she lent me the books, and I blasted through them the way you do with books so poorly written. And I was immediately struck by how much I liked and disliked it at the same time. I had a very similar reaction where I was like, I hate this, but I can't stop turning the pages. It resonated with me on some level, and I was disturbed by that because I realized it was crap. And so what did that mean? And the more I thought about it, the more I realized two things, that it was speaking to aspects of my teen experience and that those experiences were valid 
problematic though they were, and that yes, it was stupid, yes, it was misogynist, yes, it had weird Christian conservative moral messaging, but so does a lot of pop culture. Mm -hmm. And so what is so special about Twilight that sets it apart from the rest of our problematic pop culture pantheon? And of course, where I land with that is that it was aimed at the most manipulated and also despised demographic group, which is that of teenage girls. I don't think the story begins and ends there, but I do think that that's a big piece of the puzzle that we should address right from the very outset. Yeah. I also feel like I'm especially excited to talk about this right now. And this often happens. This is like a weird serendipity that tends to happen when we announce a Faculty of Horror episode and we start doing our research, but the headlines start speaking to what it is I'm researching. Did you find that with this one? Oh, yeah. yeah. I felt like that uh, we were talking about Perfect Blue last time, and it was right on the cusp of a renewal of interest in Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake and Janet Jackson. There's a lot of discourse about problematic material in pop culture, like problematic creators and how to handle that subject. We have talked in this podcast about Roman Polanski for years, and then there's that new Woody Allen doc. Joss Whedon was in the headlines again recently. Gina Carano getting fired from The Mandalorian. Dr. Seuss, etc., etc. And you and I were recently interviewed for something, and we were asked my least favorite interview question, which is how do you reconcile being a feminist and being a horror fan? Yes, it is one of my least favorite questions and also one of the ones we are most often asked. I feel like we have to scream from the rooftops that it's okay to like problematic material, that you can like it and be critical of it at the same time. And so I feel like a lot of the problems in Twilight are not at all unique to Twilight, and yet this franchise seems to bear the brunt of this moral panic, even among those who have never seen it. And I feel like we live in a context where big box office dollars don't necessarily mean a movie is good, but it does mean something. It does mean that that material is resonating with enough people to not only validate its existence, but to merit a deeper discussion, which mm -hmm. is what I'm excited to do today. Yeah. So I'm just going to say a word, friends, right now. And this word may elicit some strong reactions. So brace yourselves. Here we go. Andrew, are you ready? I don't know. <laughs> Dante, are you ready? Oh, he just cocked his head. That was yeah. so cute. Okay. He's listening. Okay. Okay. Here we go. Ready? Twihards. All right. Are you still standing? That's my reaction. It's a chortle. I always thought that was so funny. It's a fandom, but it also it, sounds it like tryhards. <laughs> and and twihards means, you know, really effusive fans of Twilight mm -hmm. and the Twilight Saga. Twihards generally refers to the teens who are really big fans of it. Uh, there were also pockets of parents, especially moms and other, you know, older, quote unquote, women who really liked these stories and books and films. And I've seen them referred to in multiple instances as, quote unquote, creepy. Oh. Yeah, that was fun. Just a nice little sprinkle, a salting of misogyny. Just a little bit of judgment there. Um, but there has been a lot of discourse as we were talking about Twilight. And a lot of the stuff around Twihards I found stemmed back to the 2008 Comic-Con. Comic-Con is the kind of huge platform for big genre films, and that's everything from Marvel to yeah. or DC or any or horror or anything else to, um, you know, bring people out. People do increasingly big stunts to get attention and announce stuff and bring people out on stage, and it's huge. And I've never been, but it sounds like a lot. So 2008 Comic-Con. Um, the audiences for Comic-Con, I think, like, 
like a lot of conventions, and I'm going to say this as someone who has been to now, I think, quite a few horror conventions. Yeah. Predominantly male. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Great. Okay. So two of us, we're saying what we have seen is in large part a male audience. Increasingly female. Yes. But still predominantly male. So in 2008, this largely male Comic-Con audience was pissed. And they were pissed because there was a Twilight panel for the film before it had come out. And it was just, you know, Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart and Catherine Hardwick, and they were out there promoting the film. Mm -hmm. So all these young women and their mothers went to Mm Comic-Con, and these men hated it. And this is documented. You can read it, you know, from an article I'm going to cite in a second to the Wikipedia page to, quote, Twilight Ruined Comic-Con. Oh, my because there were so many ladies. Oh, no. I can't have fun with ladies around. And and what I also think is really important about Twilight, Twihards, and its fandom is that the book came out in 2005. That's a pretty quick turnover, and it became a bestseller really quickly. It, you know, rose to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. Didn't get good reviews, but it found its audience, Mm -hmm. and it resonated with them. And then the film came out in 2008, and 2008-ish, we talked about this last episode, was when a lot of us found social media. So... The fandom around Twilight Mm -hmm. isn't something new. You can go back to Beatlemania and see it. And yes, you saw the women screaming for the Beatles and it was like on a news item. But now you could see it through your social media. You could see it posted. You could also see it on the news. You could see it everywhere. So it was so much easier to mock it, to deride it, Mm -hmm. to comment on it without ever actually seeing or engaging with the product itself. You could look at these young women. Again, we're talking about predominantly white, cis, able-bodied women. So we're leaving out a lot of the population when we talk about this. And I want to be cognizant of that. But we were looking at these young women reacting to something with passion and making fun of them. Mm -hmm. And I get that instinct. I also have that instinct. Sure. And that's fucked up. (laughs) It's so fucked up because I don't sit there and watch, you know, a Maple Leafs game, our Toronto hockey team, and think, what a bunch of stupid fucking men. Yeah. I think this isn't something I understand or totally get, but this means something to a lot of people, so so it must be fine. Doesn't hurt me, really. But there was a moment to tear down young women. And however you came to it, we tore them down. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to reckon with that. And I think people are increasingly reckoning with that. There's a really good article um, in ID, which is a subsidiary of Vice magazine, called How Twilight Changed Fan Culture Forever by Aleem Carroll. And they write this really thoughtful piece, and they bring up a lot of these points. And one of the points I thought was so salient to this discussion is this kind of fandom offers a space for teen girls to learn about themselves outside of a heterosexual male gaze. And we made fun of it. Mm -hmm. And I think now having gone through the book and now the movies, if I was 10 years younger, I would have been a twihard. Oh, yeah. Totally. I'm glad you brought that up because that is something that struck me like a ton of bricks when I was reading it, that if I were 10 years younger, I would love this. And I think that's where my affection for it lies, is that there is a phase of my life where maybe I wasn't as concerned with problematic role models and messaging that would have eaten this shit up. 
up a phase in my life where it was all about crushes and crushes were all consuming and you know I did spend my days mooning over pretty boys. One I think there is something to you know we can be invested in something and we don't necessarily take away all the problematic elements. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't think it's a surprise to anyone who's a regular listener of this podcast that I love slasher films. Mm-hmm. Because the figure of the final girl really means something to me. And it meant something to me to see this young woman, you know, stand at the end of a film having, you know, beaten the monster to some degree. Uh-huh. And um, now with, you know, hindsight and reading and thinking about the final girl and so much more discourse about her, I see multiple problematic elements within that figure. Yeah. And that's cool. I can now acknowledge all of those problematic elements, but it doesn't diminish that I took away I needed a strong female role model. At that time. Who was, you know, living through trauma, who was living through all these things and came out in the end to mm-hmm. some degree. Mm-hmm. It's a part of your history. It's, yeah. uh, I always tell people that when they're scared to get tattooed. And what if I'm going to regret it? It's like, you're not going to regret it because it's going to be a moment in your history. And like, you know, unless you regret your every decision, I guess some people do. Well, keep this in mind when we get our uh, 10-year Faculty of Horror anniversary tattoos. Twilight tattoos? Oh, God, yeah. Sick. I want to get a big Edward on my back. Team Edward all the way. Yeah. Um, I'm really glad that you brought up that the emergence of social media was happening at around that same time because I feel like that is another big piece to this puzzle. Um, You sent me a link today of a site called Bella's Diary. I did, yes. Uh, We'll share a link to it. There, There isn't a ton of content. It's from back in 2011 where basically a fan presumably a twihard, decided to take the story further. And they took to this blog format and as Bella, because, you know, the books are from the point of view of Bella, and a Dear Diary, today the Cullens and we all went on a picnic and we did this and I'm thinking about what I'm going to get Charlie for his birthday. And it's about as well written as the fucking books. But I think what's significant about this is that insofar as fans of this movie were maligned and most likely harassed at Comic-Con and fan events of the like, they were able to find community over their fandom of this franchise online. And they were able to develop sites like that. There was a JSTOR article. Did you see the one on the Twilight Time Capsule? No. I'll share a link to that. The Twilight Time Capsule is a web-based archive of both official and fan-generated Twilight content. And when I say content, I mean that in the broadest sense of the term and the most exciting sense of the term. Mm -hmm. Content can be anything that engages with the material, from images to memes to cosplay to whatever. Fans can upload their quote-unquote memories and quote, become a part of the Twilight Saga history. And this site was launched by the film studio Summit Entertainment back in 2011. And to me, it kind of disrupted the traditional top-down model of cultural production. You read the books, you watched the movies, now you control the storyline, you control where the fandom goes. And that's not to say that this is completely user-generated. Summit was able to edit and delete anything they didn't want in there if there was porn and guarantee someone tried to upload a bunch of porn. It's almost like someone made a whole other franchise about that porn. Well, we'll get there. there. Um, But the point to me is that this is an example of commercial enterprises getting wise 
to the power of fan culture, especially as it pertains to teen girls who want to tell their own stories, who want to apply these stories to their own experience, their own fantasies with these characters. Exactly. And I think, you know, like, I wish Summit was paying us to do this podcast. They should. Because we're kind of coming out in defense of this film. Let's send them an invoice just for shit. What do we charge them? Uh, One night with Robert Pattinson. (gasps) Don't even joke about that. (laughs) Dustin and I have an understanding. Really? For me, it's our Pat, and for him, it's Rihanna. It's fine. It's carte blanche. That's great. Um, But, like, we are part of that model because we don't take stuff from studios to make this content. We make it because we're passionate about it, and we found an audience who is also passionate about it. And we love being able to talk about films that interest us for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. So through social media, through the internet, content is not a one-form model. No. It is constantly being displaced. We are constantly having to reckon with new sites popping up. Like, oh, wow, Clubhouse is a thing now. Yeah. I don't know what Clubhouse is. It sounds like a podcast. I don't know. But I'm like, I do a podcast already. Do I need to join Clubhouse? I don't care. But, like, that's the new thing that's kind of come up in the last, like, month. And Twilight was was on the cusp of all of this. Mm -hmm. So I think it took... A lot of hits. And I also want to talk a bit about the notion of a chick flick. Let's. So chick flicks kind of became a derogatory term in the 1960s and 70s. And through kind of third wave feminism, just like with, you know, girl, bitch, other terminology, Mm -hmm, we've mm -hmm. kind of reclaimed it. So chick flick feels like another way to deride female-led films. Mm -hmm. And it's really tricky because so many of these films are centered, as I mentioned, around white, able-bodied, cis, heteronormative women. Mm -hmm. And that does not describe the female experience. That is one part of it Mm -hmm. for one specific group of people. However, you know, women and, and a lot of other people aren't given this kind of space within popular culture. So this is our way to experience things that we want to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and chick flicks are so often derided as, you know, they're selling you something, they're selling you in a way of life, mm-hmm. they're selling you in all of these things. And I don't necessarily disagree with those things. I think you can just also apply them to almost any other mainstream film That's genre, right. uh-huh. um, whether it be a superhero film or a horror film or an action film or a drama or anything like that. They are all reinforcing different parts of our patriarchal culture. So I feel like, yeah, we can pick on the chick flicks. Mm-hmm. But can we not also have a wider discussion of why things are the way they are? That's right. Why they're always relegated to the guilty pleasure. Yeah. I mean, you've long been a champion of the 90s cycle of slasher movies, mm-hmm. and it's largely part of the same conversation. Let's just get the elephant in the room out of the way. What is primarily so problematic about Twilight. Twilight is anti-feminist in that Bella is a poor role model for young girls. That is the prevailing narrative that I was able to see in the majority of quote-unquote think pieces online. I don't always like sharing articles that I don't like on this podcast, but I'm going to share this um, article from The Guardian called The Franchise That Ate Feminism, in which a male writer points out that the Twilight Saga was aimed at young women and was hugely successful, and this should make it a win for women, but it doesn't because Bella sucks. And I feel like, you know, we're always looking 
for that purely feminist film that's beyond reproach. And we've never found it. No. Even on this podcast, even the films that we love, the characters that we love, the perfect feminist film doesn't exist because movies and characters and role models are subjective. Now, Stephanie Meyer was obviously uh, compelled to respond to these allegations. And Stephanie Meyer is the author of Twilight. Yes, thank you. And she points out that the foundation of feminism is the ability to choose. Mm -hmm. And that regardless of whether or not you like Bella or her decisions, they were hers to make. And of course, the rebuttal to that is that women who choose to be subservient to men aren't making a feminist choice. Is the decision to be anti-feminist a feminist act? And round and round it goes. And that's something that I don't have a clear stance on that one way or the other. I'm certainly not prepared to defend the many problematic elements in Twilight, but I am prepared to ask some different questions. Chief among them is, do we look for perfect role models in material geared for young men. I would say no. Anti-heroes, right? Clint Eastwood, Dirty Harry, like that's old, old, old. When I think back to what boys were into when I was young, I think of superheroes. I remember the X-Men cartoon was hugely popular at the time. Pro wrestlers, hugely popular. I'm thinking of Bart Simpson. I'm thinking of Han Solo, who was too emotionally constipated to tell Princess Leia that he loved her. And yet people still think of their love story as like one of the greatest of cinema history. The assumption is that boys will emulate the good guys and be critical of the less than good guys. And we gave them that credit to make that distinction. And the only time, and, and correct me if you can think of more examples, the only time I tend to hear moral panic with regard to young men has to do with music and video games. And mm. in both cases, this concerns violence. The gendered idea that males are innately aggressive and we need to keep that impulse in check. I would agree with that. Women don't need to be protected from violent impulses. They need to be protected from moral and sexual corruption. We want girls to do whatever they want as long as they want the things we want them to want. Yes. I will say, in watching this film, I watched it once and then I watched um, bits of it over the last Today and yesterday, okay. um, just to kind of keep it fresh in my mind and mm -hmm. make sure I've separated from the other films, uh, which the blue filter definitely helps with, that is, throughout this film. Um, and pro tip, guys, every single time I upload a selfie, the first thing I do is I go to edit, temp, and cool it down a little bit. It makes everyone look damn good. Um, but in watching this film, in watching certain moments of this film, I cringed and I winced. Mm -hmm. And the moments that I cringed and I winced at were because I've lived those moments. I've been in them. That's the I, deepest cringe. It's the deepest cringe. And it's like, I'm not mad at the film for doing that. It recognized some part of my interior teen girl self who felt that. It's an awkward, self-deprecating time. And I also have to say, actually, I'm going to point this out right now because yeah. I don't think you've noticed. Well, I have to say that I really liked Bella's style in mm -hmm. this film. Mm -hmm. It felt like it's little tomboy-esque, but it's just her and Kristen Stewart is obviously beautiful and she looks great in the film. Um, There's interesting vintage pieces. And she wears a lot of Henleys in the film. Uh -huh. So I basically just like pulled out my most Bella Henley and Not I'm wearing girl. it today. Nice. My little solidarity with Bella. <laughs> but I mean, it's awkward and shitty to be in love and to have a crush and you're never gonna feel cool when you have those things. So I mean, we're gonna talk through a lot of different points and break this down for you, but I think this film really gets at the crux of 
it's kind of embarrassing and weird and awkward to like someone else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's humiliating. Yeah. Really. It really is. And yeah, it's not something that we're going to be able to watch and be like, I aspire to that. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's that cringe that we've all felt deep inside. And what I appreciate is that this film in particular gives Edward those moments. And we'll talk about that relationship, obviously, in depth. But I wanted to mention this moment that I noticed uh, really clearly today when Edward is showing her around the Cullen house. Mm -hmm. And they get to the point where he's like, "Um, this is my room. And they just kind of look at each other. And I was like, I've been in that moment with several men. And Mm -hmm. it's like, are you going to come into my room? Yeah. Because things can happen in my room. I mean, there's that. And then there's also the experience of this is my room. And it's like, you know, wall-to-wall Playboy playmates, Maxim (laughs) centerfolds. And you're just kind of like, hey, hmm. I haven't had that. Oh, God. God bless. But yeah, I I think this film— certainly affirmed my teen experience. Sure. Being terrified to say the wrong thing, definitely saying the wrong thing, having it go wrong and having to just kind of cringe your way out of the situation. Moments like that abound. And even later in the series, the love triangle with her and Jacob. I think we're going to talk more about the sequels later, but that's relatable to me. We talk about the friend zone now and oh, nice I'm guy Andrea. rhetoric. I've had two guys like me at the same time. I have had... <laughs> Guy friends confess their feelings and not want to be my friends anymore, and it smashed my heart to smithereens more times than I could count. Well, I want to smash them to smithereens. There wasn't fiction in existence that spoke to that experience at the time. There wasn't even a name for it the way it is now. Yeah. And I think that's what, you know, we go to the arts for is to see some version of our experience played back to us because mm-hmm. it's affirming. It makes us feel less alone, less weird, less strange, and it feels authentic. It's like, yeah, other people go through this as well. And Even that's beautiful wh- mega babes like Kristen Stewart. Yeah. What a bib. So I think this discussion is taking us back to another big question surrounding Twilight, which is the question of genre. Mm. It's not a horror film. It's not quite a romance, but it borrows from these elements in ways that I think because it's liminal and it's blurring those lines, I think that's part of the problem. It's a PG-13 romantic fantasy film, and it employs vampirism in a similar way that Buffy does to me, that this is a teenage romance that is set against a backdrop of danger, forbidden desire, secret knowledge, love triangles. Again, nothing new. No, and I mean, certainly when I was a teen, my big kind of like arc that I could say is similar to Twilight was the Buffy Angel romance mm-hmm. on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Or Buffy Spike, for that matter. Well, I, I kind of checked out by that time. Okay. But the, okay. the Angel Buffy thing was, like, hot to me. Dangerous. Can't have him. Emotionally inaccessible. Guys. I wish it weren't so. Uh, Well, let's, you know, take it from me at 35. I have not learned any better. Um, But there is, you know, that chicken and egg question of what do we model and what do we have modeled back to us? Yeah, what do we want and do we want what was fed to us? And as regards the romance genre, I used to work in market research. Mm -hmm. And once upon a time, Harlequin was a client of mine. Uh, And I actually went to their office once in Toronto. I don't know what I expected. I don't know if I expected it to be like a fucking bordello boudoir, but uh, it was not. It's just a publishing house. But um, the norms of the romance genre are that they are predictable. Readers know exactly what to expect. Attraction, conflict, 
and an ending where love triumphs over all obstacles, even if those obstacles are the kind of thing that would fuck up love IRL. Unconditional love is the motivation and usually the reward. Otherwise, it's a tragedy. And I feel like the author emphasizes very strongly that Bella's infatuation with Edward isn't occurring on a cognitive level. It is mm -hmm. hormonal. It is physical. Every page of that book describes in painful detail her emotion, overwhelming emotion, emotion that overrides the mind, constantly negating any rational thought. It doesn't seem like a romantic notion, but it is. Oh my gosh. I mean, in reflecting on it, the book and then the film kind of spoke to the thoughts and ideations I would have around like when I had a crush. Mm-hmm. And what would happen if I ran into the crush? Uh -huh. And you ideate and you fantasize and you, you know, have this version of yourself that is going to be so cool and perfect. And then in person, you, you know, fuck it up in yeah. some way. And then you agonize for yes. the weeks following. So speaking of genre, let's talk about YA. Let's talk about the young adult literary genre, because that's another important piece to this puzzle. Early examples of what would typify YA lit came as early as Little House on the Prairie, which was published in 1935. Part of me still can't believe it because I totally read the shit out of mm -hmm. that and enjoyed it when I was a kid. But YA wasn't really defined as such until the new realism trend that came later with Catcher in the Rye, 1951, The Outsiders, 1967. Books about dudes coming of age, basically. And these books were adopted in high school classroom curriculums to help students examine their culture critically through a lens that was relatable to them or a segment of them. Then the 1970s and 80s were kind of a golden age of teen lit as adolescence became a coveted target market. Teen girls in the 80s especially were devouring this material. The Babysitter's Club was such a big deal at the time when I was young. I never really read it, but I did devour a bunch of Judy Bloom. Mm -hmm. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. Yep. Um, and I Beverly Cleary. I loved those Ramona books. And I loved the uh, Sweet Valley High books. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, like Fear Street and the Christopher Pike books. That's right. In the 90s, YA just kind of started bleeding into genre and specifically horror like Christopher Pike, R.L. Stein, hugely popular, which set the stage for further genre expansion that we started seeing later with Harry Potter, The Hunger Games, and indeed Twilight. And so many of these stories have to do with first love, friendship, and identity. Um, these are all things that we see prominent in not only young adult fiction, but also great fiction. You can mm -hmm. trace this back to Charles Dickens and beyond. Mm -hmm. These are all notions we grapple with as readers and as we become interested in culture and wanting to see ourselves reflected in that culture. I, in my research on Twilight, came across a really interesting article called, I Can't Believe We Read the Whole Book, How Reading for Their Own Purpose Affected Struggling Teens. Mm -hmm. And this was a study by Carol A. Smith and Suzanne Schilly. And basically, it was detailing this case study of a teacher who was working with students who had, let's say, more remedial reading or writing skills. Mm -hmm. They would often refer to themselves as dumb, stupid. They didn't see themselves as readers. 
And one day this teacher came into the classroom and they really wanted to watch Twilight. The movie had just come out on like DVD and they were like, we want to watch it. And she struck a deal with the class saying, okay, if we watch this, then we have to read the book and then we're going to do some unit assignments on the book mm. and the film. And they developed this whole little curriculum around Twilight. And she had students writing about uh, what the town of Forks is like, what the relationships are like, all of these things. And she found, shockingly, that the students showed interest because the content was accessible to them, because it resonated to some degree with them. And I think that this is really important because we can look at Twilight and young adult fiction and anything that comes along with it as the first step to creating readers and thinkers and people who are invested in the world around them. And that's why I'm having more and more of a problem with denigrating Twilight. Mm -hmm. Because like anyone listening out there, you've loved something that other people have shit on. And does that feel good? No. Doesn't feel all that good. And this whole case study just wrapped up in, was it the best piece of literature? No. Did the kids engage write and think critically about it? Yes, they did. And that's way more important. And that was something that really resonated with me because when I was growing up, my parents were such readers and they still are. They're constantly with books in their hands. And I have, you know, struggled with, you know, am I a reader? Am I not? Am I, you know, and I love books. And once I found these little pathways in, it was mm-hmm. like, oh no, this is for me. I just had to find the right things for it. And I remember in high school in Ontario, they did this thing where they um, started segregating everyone into university English, college English. Mm. And then I forget what the term was, but it was essentially remedial English. Mm -hmm. And I was in the university English. And in grade 11, we read The Great Gatsby. Mm -hmm. And I wound up actually really liking The Great Gatsby. I don't know why the fuck we were reading that in grade 11. Yes, it's a great piece of literature. Yes, I would recommend it to anyone out there who is interested and wants to read it. It didn't fucking have anything to do with my life at the time. I felt good that I could read it and get something from it, but I didn't understand it as a piece of work until much later in my life. And meanwhile, I was reading Twilight a couple weeks ago, and I was like, does this resonate for me now? No. Is it kind of painful? Yes. Do I see myself in parts of this? I do. Yeah. Well, I think it's worth mentioning that nowadays, over half of YA readers are adults, which points to the fact that there is appeal for that level of narrative beyond what we perceive to be young, impressionable minds who just want to see themselves reflected in this stupid brain candy. We never really stop coming of age or grappling with our sense of self or assessing whether our relationships are good or bad for us. Like there's a universality to some of those themes. And all this is to say that the attitude I often encounter when it comes to YA, we do cover YA horror in Rue Morgue, Mm -hmm. for example, and we treat it as seriously as we do, you know, like quote unquote harder lit. To say that it's just problematic porn for stupid teen girls is reductive to the point that it's missing a way bigger cultural picture that includes a larger discussion of popular literature and our own biases about this particular demographic. And I will say, just kind of going back to my teen experience, 
I was really fortunate in that I had parents who not only were okay with me watching a lot of films because they were in the industry, but mm -hmm. were also willing to talk to me about it. And then on top of that, I had a fantastic teacher in my grade 11 and 12 years, uh, Kim Snyder, who, you know, really invested in not only her students, but in the content she was teaching. And I think the first class I had her for was media studies. Mm. And I, throughout this whole process of working on this episode, I've come to realize how deeply we undervalue media studies. Mm -hmm. Being able to consume content and then also grapple with it and pick it apart and put it back together in a way that makes sense to us. And I feel like so much of the discourse around Twilight has to do with these kind of top-line takeaways, not to get too jargony in my like day-to-day -day business life, but so much of what Twilight has become is like a six-minute compilation of Robert Pattinson making fun of Twilight yeah. on YouTube in videos. And I was watching one of those today, and he's just kind of ragging on Twilight and like his promotional interviews and stuff like that. Yeah. And I get it. Those things seem really boring and irritating. Oh, my God. But he was also cashing those checks. Oh, for sure. And from what I understand, you know, Kristen Stewart's star was on the rise at the time of Twilight, but Robert Pattinson was penniless yeah. and broke, and he flew out to L.A. on his own dime to audition. And this franchise, problematic though it is, really launched him to superstardom. And both of them have gone on to have tremendous careers, and they were bashed to shit for Twilight, for being bad actors. But truly, in this film, I think they made the most of their material and indeed elevated it in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think their chemistry, as we've talked about, is undeniable. Um, I'll talk a bit more about Robert Pattinson's portrayal of Edward uh, in a little bit, but one of the things I wanted to uh, bring into the conversation, and we'll link this in the show notes, is one of my favorite film critics, a guy by the name of Mark Kermode, mm. and he's a BBC film critic. He's awesome. He's awesome, and I don't always agree with him, mm -hmm. but what I like about him so much is he always meets the content and the film with where it is. Mm -hmm. He's not trying to put something on it that doesn't exist. Right. And his review of Twilight is quite positive. So if you're sitting there listening to this being like, no, I don't care what they say. Twilight isn't good. Well, okay, now we have a white man who's also saying yeah. Twilight isn't that, that bad. validated enough for you? And I really like his review. He had a couple criticisms of it, yeah. um, which I don't disagree with. But ultimately, in what it sets out to do, it works. Yeah. And I will say the book is very much a long trudge through teen lust. Yes. And Melissa Rosen— Infatuation. Oh, endless. And it goes from being like, oh, this is painful and I see myself in it, to this is just painful and why is it still happening it's five pages. Yeah. It's real repetitive. And— I think we have to give a lot of credit to Melissa Rosenberg's script because she changes certain elements of it. So some of the changes that are employed in the film are that the evil trio of vampires, mainly uh, James, Victoria, and Laurent, appear throughout the film. Mm -hmm. So there's this constant sense of dread. The murders going on in the mm -hmm. small town of Forks are present within the narrative of the film, rather than in the book where it just shows up at the very end. Right. And then you're like, oh my God, what the fuck are these murderous vampires doing? Oh, wow, there's a plot right now? What the fuck is going on? Yeah. Again, it's a simple fix, but I thought it was so smart. And what 
was interesting to me is that I was listening to, because, you know, thinking of all the additional fan content that has gone along with Twilight, I listened to a podcast called The Twilight Saga, and it's done by this married couple, and the wife had gotten into the films and then the book, and then she asked her husband, who apparently also has a podcast network, to start reading them with her, and he did, and then they do these chapter breakdowns of each and every book, and they do their reactions to the films. Hmm. They are so angry. Angry. About every single change that happens within the film. Because they love the books. So yes. Like they're book purists. They liked the film, then they read the books, and then going back to the film, yeah. they thought it was, like, not nearly as good anymore. You know, I feel like this is a franchise where the books and the movie kind of really go hand in hand. I agree with you, Alex, that the movies are vastly superior, but I also question whether or not I'd enjoy and understand what the movies were doing without the book. I think reading the book absolutely enhanced my experience yeah. of the film. Because I think I was even saying to you when I was reading it, I was like, I can actually see how this would be a good film. Yeah. It's a bit of a pain to read right now. But this couple even got down to the point where they got real angry about, in the book, Bella is constantly preparing meals in the house and taking care of her father, Charlie. Yes. And she doesn't do that nearly as much in the film. No. Which feels much more authentic to me because she's a teen girl and maybe doesn't cook and clean for everyone all of the time. And they just thought that was horrifying because Bella is a caregiver. Mm. And I was like, So anyway, know that the film, especially this first film, takes some liberties with the book and I think just condenses elements, condenses plots, and makes it a lot more digestible and actually adds a few things in to make it a really narratively much more interesting film than it would have been. I agree. I think the movies serve fans of the book. Mm -hmm. I think that that's what the movies are for, and I think that was um, first and foremost in the screenwriter and director's mind, that we need to make a good movie but also appease this rabid fandom. And I think they achieve that. For me, I think this first film does that. But I would like to talk right now a little bit about religion in this book and a little bit about gothic romance. So one of the things that I had as my like headlines about Twilight is that Stephanie Meyer is a Mormon and she put in all this Mormon propaganda into the book. And I thought, okay, all right, I'm going to go in, eyes wide open, let's see what's happening. I didn't discern a lot of particularly Mormon influence. However, you can read a lot of stuff online that details seemingly Mormon attitudes within the books and the films and stuff. Stuff like that. Mm-hmm. As we mentioned earlier, I think those themes and ideas, it's not that they're not present, it's just that they're part of this larger kind of puritanical culture that we all live within. So it doesn't feel particularly Mormon to me, but I leave that for you, our dear listener, to make up for your own minds. Mm-hmm. My biggest experience with Mormonism is that I just finished the first season of Real Housewives of Salt Lake City, oh. and Mormonism seems like a very oppressive, dampening religion. Dampening? Yeah. However, when I was reading this book, I was getting very similar reaction, the kind of like, 
pulling nails and sighing and rolling my eyes that I had when I was in my undergrad and I was taking my Victorian lit class. Okay. Um, and even a few other lit classes. And so much of Twilight reminds me of the gothic romance. This is not a new idea. I'm not breaking any ground. Other people have talked about this. But for our purposes here, let's talk about the gothic romance. So we've talked about it on this podcast before. Gothic started as a form of architecture that was really at odds with the natural world, so it felt very uneasy to look at. And then it transferred into literature, and that's where we get a lot of great pieces of classical literature or gothic literature. So that can start with uh, The Castle of Otranto by Horace Walpole in 1764. That is often considered the first example of gothic literature. Other examples include Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte and Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. You can also throw in The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde or something more contemporary like Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. And like the Brontes. The Brontes. <laughs> I don't know if any of you out there read the Brontes, but I have some feelings about them. And this goes back to when I was doing my minor in English Lit. And uh, let's talk about some of the characteristics okay. of it. And um, maybe if you haven't read a lot of Gothic literature and if you have seen Crimson Peak, we can use that as a kind of comparison because Guillermo del Toro is really influenced by Gothic literature. So he kind of made his own Gothic romance with Crimson Peak. Mm-hmm. So characteristics of a Gothic romance. So we can compare it to Crimson Peak. We can compare it to Twilight. A heroine in a new, perhaps unexplainable circumstance. Balak. Yep. A Byronic hero. This is named after Lord Byron, the poet. He's, I thought it meant like ironic in two ways, like Byronic. I mean, it basically could, but it's after Lord Byron. So he is uh, generally the prototype for the anti-hero. He can have a violent temper. He is seductive, secretive, manipulative, moody, and vengeful. But all of these kind of masks are revealed to be cries for help that the heroine has to get to the bottom of. So even if he's written to be fearful and manipulative, you're still attracted to him. Mm. Hi, Heathcliff. Hi, Mr. Rochester. Etc. And there's almost always a secondary love interest. He is a counterpoint to the Byronic hero. He is usually kind and has known the heroine since childhood. Oh, hey. Atmosphere is moody and suspenseful. Check, check, check. And they feature intense emotions, and there are supernatural elements such as ghosts and prophecies. Oh, shit. It's interesting. As I was putting this together, I was thinking about... I have this discussion with my friend Joanne a lot, and we both did theater as our major and doing undergrads in English Lit. And we always talked about these great pieces of literature that you hate as a lit student. Okay. There's always some kind of big highfalutin piece of literature that you just fucking hate. And what is it? Uh, so for me, it's Jane Eyre. Okay. I just find it to be utterly humorless, silly, and weird. And I, I've read it. It just doesn't resonate with me, and I know it's a classic. I'm partial to the moodier, creepier, weathering heights okay, right. of the Brontes. Well, what was it for Joe? For Joe, it was Anna Karenina, the Russian novel, and uh, she was always just like, bro, you're in front of the train earlier. 
<laughs> but I wanted to compare it to Twilight, in particular Jane Eyre, because I've always had a problem with Jane Eyre for, mm-hmm. you know, going on over a decade now. It's a grudge. It's a little grudge. And I went to one of those Guillermo del Toro masterclasses here uh, in Toronto that he was doing at TIFF. We talked about those back in our Pan's Labyrinth episode. Mm-hmm. And he did one about gothic and the film adaptation of Jane Eyre that stars Orson Welles as Mr. Rochester. And I went because I love Guillermo del Toro. And I was interested to see this version of Jane Eyre that I'd never seen before and hear him talk about it. Mm -hmm. Maybe it would illuminate something for me. He did a quick intro. We watched the film. And Andrea Orson Welles is very sexy as Mr. Rochester. I got Mr. Rochester in this film. Uh I understood the book better because of this film. Similar to how I was grappling with how fucking creepy Edward is in the book and then watching our pats do it on screen and I was like, now he's hot. Just like that. Flipped that switch. So all of this to say, when we talk about gothic romance, I think we can easily fit Twilight into this category. Maybe it's not quite the same, but I think it shares a lot of the same DNA. And so our criticisms of Twilight, Mm -hmm. to me, these kind of big ones that we're having are ultimately criticisms of our high culture that we value so dearly. Ah. These are all big fucking problems, and I think they should be fixed. Yeah. But I have a hard time pinning all this shit on Twilight when it's existing within a realm that is predetermined as great culture. Ha. Shit, dude. That is blowing my mind on so many levels. Not the least because I have in my notes an article that I saw that argues that Twilight is an inversion of traditional gothic fiction. Oh, And I was kind of saving it for when we get into why the fuck do people like this stuff? Like, we're going to talk about what it is, what it's meant to be, how it resonates, and why do people like it? Like, the kind of more populist theories. And this article argues that Twilight repackages conservatism in a way that's comforting and appealing rather than transgressive, which is normally associated with gothic fiction. And I'm going to admit right on the onset that I am not uh, well-versed in gothic fiction outside of horror movies. (laughs) So my understanding is kind of limited, but this article argues that Twilight's popularity, in spite of how unoriginal it is, is that it takes the gothic and injects it with conservative appeal. As per this article, it argues that gothic fiction is about the past returning and the dangers and perils therein, that it's been used to critique capitalism, consumerism, gender roles, etc. But here... The gothic elements are sanitized. The demons are more like angels. And indeed, the article kind of pulled quotes from the book Twilight that really likens Edward and the Cullens to fallen angels. And so for Bella, it's less about her choosing the dark side than the light, so to speak. And other vampire boyfriends, as per True Blood, Vampire Diaries and Buffy are bad boys who fell off the wagon and need to be rescued by the irrational love of a heroine, whereas the Cullens are more like sheep in wolves' clothing. They're the good guys. They repress their nature for morality's sake, which is a complete 180 from the typical queer readings of monstrosity and repression you get from Gothic. Now, Marx 
likened consumerism to vampires in mm. terms of immediate gratification, immoral self-gratification. And the Cullens moralize their appetites instead of being corrupted by it. And the article appears to be arguing that for this reason, Twilight makes us feel better about consumerism. And it points out that the first movie coming out in 2008 corresponds with a, an economic recession. But, I mean, my critique is that I see that point, but why is that comforting? Like, if Edward weren't a vampire, he'd still be considered a catch in conventional narrative terms just by virtue of the fact that he's rich, he's hot, he's popular at school, and most importantly, he's unattainable to other girls who want him. And that's the script for the good life, hmm. right? Like the traditional woman would want to marry into. It's the fairy tale we've been swallowing our whole lives. And it's packaged in a nice blue instant. Instagram filter like we talked about, but I don't see why that would be comforting. Yeah, I don't know if I agree with that reading totally. I mean, we'll talk about this a bit more when we talk about the sequels, but the whole kind of feminist trajectory, if you want to see one in Twilight, and I understand if you don't, is that through Bella becoming a vampire, she's realizing her autonomy. Yes. Which happens later on in, in She classroom. sees it that way. I feel like Edward is resisting that, but and that's he a part is, of But eventually thing. he comes around, mm -hmm. and to me, my problems with gothic romance is, and this is the problem I had with Jane Eyre, problem I had with Wuthering Heights, and um, even Northanger Abbey, which is Jane Austen's kind of satirical take on the gothic romance, is ultimately it is up to these Victorian angels, these women who are so pure and so good, saving these fallen men. And I've always just struggled with that mm -hmm. because I think that is a really toxic place to be. Mm. Saying that as someone who's fallen into that trap myself is you're not coming out of that hole. Toxic, but no less real. Yeah. And uh, the toxicity will drag you down. Mm -hmm. It'll try to take you with it. So, yeah, I, I mean, sure, you can have that reading. Absolutely. I don't totally subscribe to it. I think that's totally fair. Yeah. And I don't think I subscribe to it either. However, again, my efforts toward theorizing why people like Twilight, I, 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 it doesn't have a theoretical basis. It, it just comes down to the feels. It just comes down to the relatability. Yeah. Well, it's going to strike a chord with you or it's not. And there's complicated reasons why. So... Speaking of Byronic heroes and problematic men and what the fuck is Edward even doing, can we talk about this section that I have in my notes called Twilight's Problematic Love? <laughs> I can't wait. Because I feel like this is kind of the linchpin that a lot of people have been waiting for us to talk about in this episode. Let's lay out the ways in that Edward is a creepy fucking fuck. Okay. He is a creep. He's also obsessive. He is manipulative. And he is using tactics, more so throughout the book, but they are kind of all included within the film, such as nagging, gaslighting, and stalking. And again, I'm going to come real clear with you guys, is that this kind of character was something I was really attracted to in my teens. Mm -hmm. You know, see Buffy and Angel. And now through therapy, <laughs> I have realized... <laughs> that I've been in very abusive relationships that have employed each one of those tactics that I, at the time, took as some form of love, but it was actually quite destructive to me mentally. So in me reading Twilight, in me watching Twilight, although I've come away with much more appreciation for it, I'm still seeing these behaviors reified within this arena. 
And that is kind of what scares me a little bit. And this is where I think media literacy comes into it so that we can disassemble all of the problematic elements that exist within it while still enjoying the things that mean something to us. Um, you know, and I also want to talk about the age discrepancy between them. And also, uh, we've alluded to it already, but Bella's clumsiness. Mm-hmm. But Andrea, I feel like you have things to say. About Bella's clumsiness? About all of that. I just I put mean, a lot out there. When you were doing your research, you know, we talk almost every day. You had mentioned the age differential as being pedophiliac and creepy, and it hit me like a ton of bricks because it's absolutely true, and I was kind of struck by the fact that I hadn't considered that context in other vampire texts that we've talked about. Specifically, Fright Night came Mm -hmm. to mind, which is such an incredibly sexualized scenario of I'm stealing your virginal teen girl, and I'm going to deflower her, and she's going to love it. And Chris Sarandon is again... But that's fucking problematic, and it is problematic because young women, and I say this as someone who was once a young woman, we are taught, or I was certainly taught, that girls mature earlier than boys. So it is normal for us to maybe want someone older than us. Oh, yeah. Not to mention if he teases you, it's because he likes you. There is so many creepy issues that go into this, and the older I get— the creepier I find it. Because if I have a male friend who's around my age in his mid-30s and he was dating someone, let's say, in her early 20s, I would be a bit like, what's happening here? And this is all to say, I know people with big age gaps. That's true, yeah. Who have made it work. Uh, Two dear friends of mine have a 14-year age gap between them. One of the most solid couples I know. My parents have 10 years between them. Mm -hmm. You know, they have made it work. So I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm saying there's a power discrepancy when that happens. Mm-hmm. And I say this as someone who was in a series of relationships with men who are much older than me. Mm-hmm. And I think they made decisions at their age that now, having reached their age, I would not have made. That's right. Yeah. With someone who was younger than me. Mm-hmm. And so I think that becomes really creepy. And then as well, Again, I'm going to mention my age again. It's 35. I cannot imagine, A, attending high school again, and B, going to the prom again. And again and again and again. If it's not on my couch with my weighted blanket and a cup of peppermint tea, I don't know if I want to hear about it anymore. We went through it once and we're done with it. Imagine. Repeatedly. So Edward, throughout the book and the film, you know, he's kind of playing with Bella. And and we see this, especially in the film, I feel like, because Robert Pattinson is charismatic and he's a good actor and you like him when you see him on screen, or certainly I did, where he kind of comes up to Bella and he's like, I can't be friends with you. Mm -hmm. And you're like, okay, great. We're moving the plot along. But then also part of me is like, yeah, no shit. Get away from her. Just stay the fuck away, you old man. Go away! Um, the gaslighting around—it's uh, it's much more pronounced in the book, but it is, again, present in the film when he saves her from the car accident. And she's like, no, you stopped it. You stopped it. You saved me. And he's like, no, I didn't. No one's going to believe you. Yep. He literally says no one's going to believe you. Yeah. How fucked up is that? Yeah. And then stalking. So I have dealt with a stalker, and it's not fun. The idea of Edward— Sitting in her bedroom for months, watching her sleep. Watching her sleep. Is so fucking creepy. I have had exes say to me, I remember that time I watched you sleep. And I was like, don't watch me sleep. Ew. Oh, my God. What the f- I'm probably drooling on myself. Like, don't do that. 
read a book. I don't know. This is the stuff where I find, like, Stephanie Myers, Catherine Hardwick, Melissa Rosenberg did not invent any of this stuff as being quote-unquote romantic. They're part of a lineage, and it scares me that this lineage is being passed on as romantic to a whole new generation of people. Hmm. It's not to say I didn't watch Twilight and be like, oh, that's kind of romantic. I totally did, but well, it's creepy to me. And, and it's not—I'm sure you can remember having an all-encompassing crush yes. in your teenage years where that notion would be romantic to you. And there is kind of fantasy payoff with it. I wish it had been done in a much more healthy way. If it was done in a much more healthy way, would it still be as titillating a fantasy? Ugh. Like, this is where the complexity comes in, yeah. you know? You're right. It's nice to think that the person you're obsessed with is just as obsessed with you, and you've got that tension between you. So I know I'm contradicting myself. This is where I'm putting on my media studies hat that Miss Snyder taught me. Andrea and I have been kind of rewatching. Uh, I've been rewatching 30 Rock. Andrea's watching it for the first for time. For the first time. And uh, Andrea, I don't know if you remember the plot line where Liz has the book and then the TV show Deal Breakers. Uh-huh. And I was reading the book and constantly being like, that's a deal breaker, deal ladies. Breaker. Deal breaker. And that's what happens when you get older is you have the wisdom to look back and be like, this infatuation was inappropriate. This relationship was toxic. This behavior was creepy. But at the time, and I think, you know, we're talking about how Twilight is, on the one hand, validating these things in their truth, but on the other hand, shining a light on stuff that's not okay in retrospect at all. And I feel like this is leading the conversation into a place I hoped it would go, which is the idea of adolescence as a social construction. And what we experience of adolescence isn't a natural, organic thing. We tackled this before on the podcast, and I think it was actually also in relation to vampires. I think we talked about it in our episodes on uh, Lost Boys and Fright Night, maybe. But I explained how adolescence as a clearly defined moment in life is a relative new phenomenon is back in feudal times kids worked for their parents as soon as they were physically able to and they dressed like little adults and they were treated like little adults but as society changed we started to isolate and define the transition from childhood to adulthood as adolescence, which was defined by identity formation, social skills, decision-making, all these things. And then in the 70s and 80s, adolescence became further defined by consumerism. When teens were getting part-time jobs, they became sought-after consumers in that they had all this disposable income. And they would consume to bolster their sense of identity. And that's why mm-hmm. there is so much industry surrounding what teens are into, what is on fleek right now, and how we can make money off of that. But it's important to note that this sense of identity, these stereotypes associated with teens, are largely defined by adults. Adults are writing these Babysitter's Club books. Adults are writing the scripts for Saved by the Bell. Adults are designing the clothes in the fucking Delia's catalog. And certainly teens have some agency in what they adopt and what they reject, but they're also being bombarded with so much information about what teens are and how they should be and how they should behave and look and dress and talk while they're trying to get a grip on who they are and where they fit into the world. And I think that's something that's really interesting to me right now because we're witnessing something of a breakdown of all that. Mm -hmm. Teenagers today have more and more access to content created 
by other teens. Via social media, YouTube and TikTok have this sense of authenticity where they're like, you know, this is made by a teen that's just like me, not a boardroom of white male execs. And even though Twilight was written, frankly, pretty poorly by an adult, it has a life beyond what Stephanie Meyer created that was adopted by the teens who were consuming it. Yeah, and I think in doing so, because clearly teens, let's use them as the kind of base here, Mm -hmm. are picking up on some element of Twilight. So I think that perpetuates this circle Mm -hmm. of this kind of love is acceptable to adulthood where you kind of fantasize about that love and it kind of re-trickles down through culture and it kind of creates this way of accepting love. I also remember being a teen to me was so much about what I now know to be my hot takes. Okay. I liked this. I didn't like that. Uh-huh. I liked Our Lady Peace and Matthew Goodband. Tragically Hip was too old for me. Okay. You know, I'm sorry, there's some real Canadian deep cuts. You draw those boundaries, and that's where teendom lies. But that's how you define who you are. Mm-hmm. Horror, for me, was very much a private thing because I didn't— have any friends who liked horror, really, except for Alice when I was in high school and and then, you know, later on with you. I didn't have a lot of people to consume it with. Um, So, so much of it was consumed on my own. So it became a very private thing. And it's only relatively recently in my life I've been able to be much more public about it. I don't quite know where I'm going with that point, except that we respond to the things we respond to. Mm-hmm. And so while I can say it's cyclical, while I can say hindsight is twenty twenty, while I can say all of these things now, there is clearly some part that continues to resonate with us as humans. Whether you're reading, you know, a gothic romance novel in the 18th century or you are in, you know, the aughts reading mm-hmm. Twilight. There is something that sticks with you as, oh, that's love. Yes. I think that is a fantasy love, and that is the fantasy love of romance novels, and it's the fantasy love of Twilight, and I think that is the line that you draw between something like Twilight and something like, for example, You, Mm -hmm. which is about a real-life stalker and very toxic, murderous, harmful relationships. And I think there's an important difference between the two because vampires aren't real, so we can fantasize about them like that. But real stalkers exist, and in a concrete context, as per you, that's different. It's very much so. And, you know, my therapist has told me, and I actually really like this sentiment, you have your expectations of love, and then you have your experience of love. Mm -hmm. And those two things are often really different. And when she was saying that to me, it made me think of something you said in one of our really early episodes. And I want to say it was our Fatal Attraction Fear episode. Holy shit, that was number two. I was way back. And uh, I think you said something to the effect of, we don't get to watch our parents date. Mm -hmm. So we watch love and romance through the media we consume. Mm -hmm. And I think that has really stuck with me. So this kind of like brooding archetype that really appealed to me continues to appeal to me, but I now see it as a much more problematic thing. Yeah. It's one thing to live, and, and it's another thing to fantasize about. So I would like to now talk about... I don't know if I'd call it an iconic scene, but it is one of the most talked about scenes in Twilight. When the vampires play baseball. It's the great American pastime. It is the great American pastime. I had seen the scene a few times before I actually sat down to watch the film. Um, (laughs) Really? 
Yeah, just because it had been mentioned, it had been mocked, and I watched it, and I was like, ha, 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 that's dumb. So dumb. It's pretty dumb. Within the context of the overall film, it's a bit less dumb, but it's still a bit like, all right. Um, If any of you sleuths out there can tell me, I tried to find out why Stephanie Myers wrote this baseball scene in there. Okay. Uh, I could not find anything. However— I have a theory, and I have a theory as to why it was laid into the film, not only as a kind of climactic point within the film, but also to speak to the larger family structure issues within the film and the book. Oh my. Proceed. If you are maybe a little bit less familiar with Twilight, you're maybe saying, yes, uh, Alex, I've... I've seen that baseball scene, and it's so fucking dumb. How dumb is it? Well, it is so dumb. However, that is not the only time baseball appears within the book or in the film. Bella's mom upends both of their lives, her life and Bella's life, to follow her boyfriend who has a career in minor league baseball. baseball player. I didn't Mm -hmm. make that connection. So Bella has to go back to Forks with a life that her mom rejected. Right. The Cullens baseball scene is a complete 180 from her family. She is invited not to play, but to participate. And when James Laurent and Victoria, the evil vampire, show up, the Cullens work to protect her. Mm-hmm. Bella's own family structure, her mom and Charlie, her father, are caring towards her, but it feels like there's a bit of ambivalency towards her. She's so with it that she can kind of handle herself. She's on a whole different playing field, to use a baseball analogy. But this kind of way of playing, so to speak, shows that the Cullen's family structure actually works for her. Mm. They are including her. And I love the weird flex of, like, we can only play within a thunderstorm because our fucking hits are so loud. Again, it's eye-rolly and it's lame. However, Bella gets to participate. Mm -hmm. And when those vampires show up, they gather around her and defend her. They do. And I know we talk about how hot Edward is. But having people you don't know very well stick up for you and defend you is pretty incredible. And not even like you. Like, Rosalie gets really hissy. Yeah. And there are some tensions and issues there, but ultimately they all decide because of their ideology that they need to protect her because they protect their family. And if Bella's with Edward and because she's a human and deserves to live, she is part of the family. Mm I wanted to bring in a book that I kind of knew about when I was in my teens and I used in my 90s uh, teen horror book called Reviving Ophelia, Saving the Selves of Adolescent Girls. It's by Mary Pfeiffer, and I got the kind of newly updated 30th anniversary with Mary Pfeiffer and her daughter, Sarah Pfeiffer Gilliam. And this book works to examine girlhood in a modern Western culture and why in particular in the 1990s suicide, self-harm, and self-loathing were on the rise among teen girls. Mm. It has a bunch of different chapters I thought really applied to Bella and her uh, family structure. So mothers, according to the Pfeiffers, and I often identify with a few of these bits, uh, for mothers and teen girls, relationships are regressive and dependent and can be over-involved 
or not enough involved. Mothers are scorned and criticized. They must balance helping daughters grow while keeping them from getting hurt. Um, growing up requires rejection and... In doing so, you have to kind of reject your mother, the closest female figure to you. You have to, in some way, delineate yourself from her. And while I think in the book we see Bella is much more of a carer, and in the film she's a bit more rebellious, I think it speaks a lot to the fact that she has kind of returned to Forks and has fallen in with a guy who is— embedded within Forks and wants to stay there. So when her mother calls her and says, Jacksonville is great. You're going to love it out here. We want you to come out soon. She's like, no, I really like it here. Mm -hmm. I think it's really great. Um, And I think that delineation is quite prominent within the book. And I thought it was very interesting because she, in her teen rebellion, manifests in this family structure, a more typical feminine role. Mm. I feel like there are two moments where she says, actually, I kind of like Forks, and it's when things are heating up with Edward, and then Bella has to put together that ruse that I had a big fight with Edward, and like this is all to kind of cover up what's really going on with the vampire that's hunting her. And when she is in the hospital, and her mother is like, okay, I'm taking you to Jacksonville, and she's like, no. She has to kind of renege on the narrative that she constructed to cover up what was going on. Because she says, I said the same things to Charlie that my mother said to him. And she did that deliberately because she knew it would work, and... Again, it's that kind of murky ugliness. We don't like that she did that, but we also get it. Yeah, because that's how she could be with the person she wanted to be with Uh and ultimately stay in Forks. We've all been there. Now, in Reviving Ophelia, there's a chapter, like there's a chapter about mothers, there's a chapter about fathers, and this is a quote. Many fathers receive a big dose of misogyny training as boys, and nowhere did this hurt them more than in parenting their daughters. They were in the awkward position of loving a gender they'd been taught to devalue. And when I read that, it's such a kind of weird penny drop for me. Mm. But it was so endemic of Charlie because I really like Charlie as a character. I like him in the film. He's kind of this guy who's like, I don't know women. He's got his guns and he's Uh trying to like be really protective, but he doesn't really know anything about his daughter because he's so awkward around her. Uh And I think it serves to isolate Bella more. So while she's got this kind of safety net of, you know, a home and electricity and running water and food in the fridge— she doesn't necessarily have that really solid connection to someone who understands her and can be a sounding board for her or a place for her to land or go to talk to. That's right. I I think misogyny takes many forms, and there's hatred of women, and then there's also fear of women. And I think for a character like Charlie, who failed in his marriage, and I feel like he's just terrified of Bella. I feel like he's scared to do her wrong. He's scared to lose her. He's scared to say the wrong thing and do the wrong thing, and so he just kind of clams up. Yeah, and I think Charlie becomes a positive character throughout the series because he is steadfast. He's kind of there. He provides... Uh, enough of a safe home for her to go back to, but he also allows her enough freedom that she can go off and live this fantasy. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's kind of this perfect place, but there's also not a sense of a tie 
for anywhere for Bella. I never get the sense that she is an anchor somewhere where she has a sense of home and self. And she finds it much more easily, to me anyway, with the Cullens, who are willing to fucking drop everything, get on planes, travel across country to protect her. Whereas her mom is like, I got to go be with my minor league boyfriend. Uh, have fun in Forks. Bye. Well, yeah, and I think part of that has to do with the affluence of the Cullens, and part of that has to do with that Charlie would bust heads if it came to protecting Bella. But it has this weird, disconnected, bulldogish relationship. Well, it's very reductive. Yeah. Because she can't take care of herself. She can't fucking do anything. She falls down all the time. I'm going to intimidate the guy who's dating you, and you better have her home on time. And, like, this classic, hyper-masculine, paternal, patriarchal figure. And I think Edward also kind of wants what's best for her, but he's bad for her. Well, I mean, there's so much within the book, and they kind of awkwardly shoehorn it in within the film that she's so clumsy. She's so awkward. She's constantly falling down. She can't do anything. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh my God, what is happening with her? Like, there's something very wrong that we need, like, medical people to maybe talk to. However, the the book and the film kind of treat it as, oh, she needs to be protected. Mm -hmm. She needs to be saved. This is a great way for Edward to show his affection and his protection and what he can offer her by being there to take care of her. I think you see that very clearly in the scene where she leaves the bookstore and gets lost on her way to meet her friends and he shows up in his Volvo to protect her. She is seemingly this, you know, kind of little, like, dumb baby. Yeah. You can't do very much, especially, again, within the book. It's less pronounced within the film. But she needs to be saved constantly. And she doesn't have a family who can do that, so it's up to the Cullens. I'm just going to say that it's part of why she wants to be a vampire. It's part of why she's happy to reject this mortal human coil that is in her mind, limiting her potential. Yeah. And I think that's worth saying because I feel like when I was a teenager and the more I learned about what I could accomplish as a woman and what I could achieve, your potential is so stunted by the patriarchy. And this is around the same time that I was taking higher education and feminism, which opened up a whole world to me, but it also opened up a whole world of obstacles that I wasn't aware of. And indeed, I'm still learning about these obstacles. I'm learning about obstacles that are ahead of people of color and people less able-bodied. And it's something that you learn on and on. And I think the promise of immortality and all this power, we talked about that in in our craft episode. And Mm -hmm. this is something that's that's fairly universal and not necessarily an inherently misogynist thing. No. But let's talk more about misogyny. Oh, let's. So the other elephant in the room that we have to talk about is internalized misogyny. We have talked about misogyny on this podcast, and sometimes misogyny, you know, it worms its way in when you're young, when you're not educated, when you're not critical, when a whole bunch of reasons like misogyny and patriarchy bombards you from every direction in popular culture, and that stuff sinks in, and so much of my journey of adulthood has been dismantling my own harmful beliefs toward 
who I am, who I could be, and what a woman could be. In my own experience, I was very mistrustful of other women in my early 20s, being competitive with other women. I victim-blamed. I slut-shamed. I drank that patriarchal Kool-Aid right up to university when I got straightened the fuck out about a lot of things. And even today, I still struggle with my body image, my imposter syndrome, and the fact that I sometimes have unfair patriarchal expectations of my male partner. Are you about to say that this whole podcast is a long-form grift? Uh, <laughs> just trying to get me in the end? I've just been negging you this whole time. Oh, no! Are you familiar with the term Marianismo? I am not. Tell me more. This is the antithesis to machismo. It's a term that was developed by a writer in the 70s to come up with this flip side to the term machismo, exaggerated feminine traits of passivity, chastity, and self-sacrifice. And it's one of those forms of like benign sexism where it hurts women by aggressively upholding the sexist status quo. And it's something that is typified by ideology of quote-unquote not like other girls. Yes. And I know you have thoughts and feelings about I this. I think any hot-blooded woman is just like, I know what that is. I've heard it before, and I've heard it be used for pure evil. <laughs> Not like other girls insinuates two things. One is that the entire female gender can be easily generalized under one umbrella. And two, that there's something inherently wrong or lesser than with that generalized gender. And so in thinking critically about Twilight and in about how I related to this material as a teenager and my role with internalized misogyny as a teenager, it took me to a little film that you showed me called Boxing Helena. Now, ever since the pandemic began, I have been hosting weekly family nights. As the editor of Room Morgue, I used to host family night. Once every couple of months, I'd have all the writers over to the manor, and we would watch a movie, and we would roast it. And I think when the pandemic hit, we had a family night planned that I had to cancel right. a year ago now, come yeah. to think of it. Yeah. And then our friend Allison Lang was like, let's take family night online. And we started doing that a couple of months in. And we watched some serious doozies. We intentionally watch bad movies to make fun of them. Totally. And that's we get, the goal. We get on Zoom, we get on the Zoom chat, and we roast them together as a family. It's super fun. It's great. It's helped me feel connected to this community throughout. And Boxing Helena is a title that was Alex's idea. Alex brought it to the table. And I truly think that if it had a proper release, it would definitely be a Faculty of Horror episode. But I because know. it hasn't, it it sits in this weird realm of, if you've seen it, we can talk about it. If you haven't, well, shit, I don't know what to tell you because it's not easy to find. No, but what a movie. I mean, I watched it towards the beginning of the pandemic because I was trying to work through a couple films that I'd always heard about but never seen. And that was on my list. And I couldn't have imagined how silly it was until I saw it. I co-watched it with a friend of mine, Chris. Uh, we were texting each other throughout. And then I brought it to family night um, a few months later just being mm -hmm. like, we have to. Like, we have to. And I found the link and I shared it. And I was like, I need everyone to see this alongside of me and Chris. It 
blew my fucking wheels. Yeah. And it it hit me uh, in some of the same spots that Twilight does. Mm. And this is a film that was written by a 19-year-old Jennifer Lynch, and this film is problematic as fuck, but it is full of teenage fantasy. And it's about a surgeon who is obsessed with this beautiful woman that he went out with once. And she's not interested in carrying on with him. So after she's hit by a car, he kidnaps her and amputates her legs. Later, after she tries to choke him, he amputates her arms as well. And through it all, even though he's physically making her smaller and smaller, she still calls the shots. He controls her body but in the end, he can't control her mind. And this film is flawed on just about any level that a film could be flawed. And I want to say, Andrea just made it sound really, like, smart and poignant. It's also a very deeply dumb movie. It's it's sloppy in it's these themes. It's very stupid. Yeah. But Andrea's absolutely right. Like, that's an incredible reading of it. Thank you. But yeah, I mean, David Lynch's daughter, Yoza. She had this weird idea, and I think she was connected and encouraged because she was David Lynch's daughter. And, and like, the production history behind this film is completely bonkers. Kim Basinger, uh, Madonna. Bankrupted herself to get out of being in this film. Look it up. Again, like so many reasons why I would love to devote an entire episode. But short of that, my broad strokes analysis of this film is that it's a metaphor for how women are simultaneously put on a pedestal and adored, but oftentimes that adoration is really sick and twisted and harmful. And I feel like the fantasy of boxing Helena isn't in the surgeon's manipulation of Helena. It's in the limits of that manipulation. Mm. It's in the boxing. It's complicated as hell. But navigating patriarchy is a complicated thing. And when I watched Boxing Helena, I really appreciated its honesty. Mm-hmm. It felt like a very true and sincere portrayal of how a teenage girl might perceive what it is she's up against entering the world of patriarchy. It's interesting to bring that into Twilight. And again, I I'm going to need to sit with that analysis of Boxing Helena for a while because I was all about the found <laughs> scene of Boxing Helena. I still am. I love the fucking film. It's all so great. If someone, if you're out there and you're a distributor or someone who has power, please Pick put this, this up for fuck's sake. At the very least so we can do a proper episode on it because I would love to talk about it in depth. However, one of the things I remember from my initial screening of New Moon where I laughed and was basically an asshole throughout the whole film mm-hmm. I came away being like, God, Anna Kendrick, who is um, one of Bella's human friends within the film series, Mm -hmm. and she was kind of breaking out in her own right at the time, I was like, oh, yeah, she's really good. She's a really good actor because she was playing such a dumb character as her friend, just Mm -hmm. being like, I'm a silly girl. I don't know. I just want this boy to like me. I thought it really— That was a good imitation. Fuck. Again, I have two theater degrees, Uh my friends. Never forget. Um, There is such a discrepancy between Bella and the other female characters within this film, Mm -hmm. Uh, particularly the human females within this film. Her mom is flighty. Her human friends are flighty. They're all kind of like boys and things and this and this and that. And it all feels very tangential, Mm -hmm. whereas Bella's love is forever. Her thing is forever. She's engaging and existential. Totally. And this was something I definitely had internalized when I was a teen, probably through university, the I'm not like other girls. I'm like this. I define myself 
in reaction to them. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's a healthy way to be because as soon as I kind of got out in the real world, I realized, I think for me, thankfully, very quickly, my female friends were my biggest asset and my biggest safeguard and the best pieces of my life that I've ever had. And I believe that to this day. And it scares me a little bit that Twilight devalues them. Mm-hmm. Those kind of relationships. I, I think there is that moment in Twilight when um, Alice comes in and she hugs Bella and she says, because Alice is um, Edward's kind of pseudo-sister. She's uh, very clairvoyant. She, yes. She can see the future and she says, Bella, we're going to be great friends. Mm-hmm. And so is, there's always this kind of use of Alice not only as a kind of empath future seer, but also she can just say, we're going to be great friends. You don't have to impress me. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do anything. And there is this thing when you meet, certainly for me, another woman, especially a woman you respect. And I remember when I was meeting you, Andrea, where I was like, oh, I hope she thinks I'm cool because I'd heard you on the Roomorg podcast. I was like, if I'm not friends with her, I don't know, like, what I'm going to do with my life. <laughs> oh my God. Well, I, not to be all Edward about this, but it was really like I felt such kinship with you. And, and hearing this stuff, you really illuminated so many things to me. And I was like, I hope I don't fuck this up. And, you know, thankfully, 10 plus years later, I haven't so far. Not yet. But yeah, it's a very real thing that we are, as women, I think, are kind of trained to vie for attention and a vie for status through men, through various things. And ultimately, the status you give is the status you give yourself. That's right. I I think. I hear what you're saying in that— It's a shame that Bella wasn't able to find a fellow female peer among mortals. And it's a shame that Andrea Subasati didn't. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, there's there's a truth to that. Yeah. And that truth has to do with internalized misogyny. Mm -hmm. And that's a fact, sadly. Am I your peer? You're my peer. Yay! I have so many female friends now. I have way more female friends than male friends. And indeed, like, my female friends are my oxygen. It's the complete inverse of the life I was leaving. I was thinking about this recently, and I feel like up until I kind of got into, quote, unquote, the real world, like after I left my undergrad, I was always like, feminism, it's fine, it's whatever. And I got into the, again, quote, unquote, real world, and I was working, and I was doing various things, and I was like— no, I need the women around me. Mm-hmm. It's the only way I'm going to survive this. That's a coming of age, yeah. and that's a part of my story. And the fact that Bella isn't there yet, I don't take as a slight against her because no. I don't take it as a slight against myself. And I think that's a good way to look at it because I wouldn't know how to ask something more of a story like Twilight. I would just ask that there are more stories about women hanging out with other people. Yeah. But it's not my story. Maybe that's the next generation's, and I hope it is. I hope Um, so. Yeah. I'm not having any kids, but if I did, I would encourage them to uh, learn these lessons sooner. Mm -hmm. So I would like to, if I may, talk about some of the issues I picked up from Twilight and look at how they relate to some of the latter entries into this film franchise. Yeah, let's, because Twilight is um, a moment of the night, and then it gets darker, doesn't it? 
Or it breaks dawn or something, <laughs> something eclipse new moon. Um, I'll be interested to hear what our listeners think because I'm going to use Canadian terminology within Canada. What we are taught to use is indigenous communities. And I know there are different uses in America. So just bear with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly feel like in Canada, we are in the midst of a reckoning in the way we portray indigenous cultures here. Indigenous cultures and communities communities have been totally marginalized for centuries. And in the last few years, and hopefully even more moving forward, we are trying to not only make reparations, but create space for them to tell their own stories. Mm -hmm. So what was really interesting to me about the Twilight franchise was the introduction of Jacob, who is indigenous. He's part of the Quileute tribe, uh, which is a real tribe. They are near Forks, Washington, which is also a real place. Uh, hot tip, the original title of Twilight was going to be Forks. Oh. Very glad the publishers changed that. But so you have this uh, indigenous culture which is hinted at within Twilight and it is kind of discussed and Jacob pops up a few times. He becomes a much more prominent character as do uh, several other members of his community throughout the rest of this series. And Film Days has a really great piece uh, about indigeneity and the Twilight saga, and we'll link it in the show notes, and it's called The Twilight Saga's Issues with Indigenous Culture by Shea Vassar. But essentially, you're kind of pinning these two entities at odds. You've got the Cullens, who are the vampires. They are the bastion of purity and restraint. And then the Quileute tribe, who had this heritage of lycanthropy and werewolves, and they are emotional and aggressive. Mm-hmm. So where the problem comes in is that they cast a non-Indigenous actor and Taylor Lautner to uh-huh. play Jacob. The Quileute, as I mentioned, are a real tribe. And Stephanie Myers, nor the films or anyone else, asked permission of the Quileutes to be part of this story. They did not offer them any uh, recompense for utilizing their name and heritage and mythology because there is a vague truth to uh, some of the story that Stephanie Meyer pulled within their heritage. Obviously, they are not werewolves. And one of the things that this Film Days article pulled that I thought was really important and interesting and mentioned kind of briefly within the film is Edward says, we have a treaty with the Quileutes and we don't go on their land and they don't come on ours. Now, if you are at all thinking about the indigenous cultures near us or around us, treaties are really important. Treaties have more than often been fucked up have been torn aside, have been manipulated, have been just fucked over and not honored in so many ways. And I thought it was so interesting that Edward has this throwaway line about, yeah, we have a treaty. And then throughout the rest of the film series, we see these two kind of families become intertwined, which in some ways I get is like, quote unquote, good, but it's also throwing away deeply embedded agreements. Mm-hmm that were agreed to generations ago that were designed to protect and create space for an indigenous community that are never honored. And that's really fucked up. 
through my work, I explore indigeneity and I learn more about it. And I think Canada is trying to do a lot to create more opportunities for indigenous culture to break into the mainstream. Um, it's really disappointing to me that there wasn't more effort put into it. And I, I do want to say that in my research of indigeneity and the Twilight Saga, there are people from indigenous culture, seemingly, who are fans of these films. And I say, um, supposedly, because this is all on message boards and things like that, that people say, I'm from a reservation. It was really empowering to see a romantic lead as an indigenous person, mm -hmm. as from a reservation, as all of this stuff. So I kind of take my initial gut reaction with a bit of a grain of salt. It's great to have representation. We need to have it. And I think we should ask of it more legitimacy because, you know, you might think, oh, Taylor Lautner, he's not indigenous. Does it really matter? It does matter. It does because it continues to pick away at a community that is already so heavily marginalized and it picks away at the humanity and the intersection of their culture and what they can all bring to the table. And it is so important to have authenticity when a community is so heavily marginalized. I agree with all that. I think, you know, this was 10 years ago and this was a time where, where representation was just like, oh, they're there yeah. and they're not being depicted as drunks in savages. Or, or harmful exactly i mean the savagery question is a bit muddier because you know we've talked about savagery versus civilization as a theme a lot in this podcast and i think you know the cullens as i mentioned before when we were talking about the gothic is the cullens repress their quote-unquote savage urges and they are vegetarians quote-unquote and they are dignified and they are doctors and they are aristocratic and they are wealthy whereas these werewolves they have this nature that's a more compulsive more animalistic and insofar as it's positive and benign and a protector role it doesn't have that gloss yeah. that the cullens have that the vampires are always going to be the more aristocratic whereas the werewolves are going to be the more animalistic and there's racism inherent in that yeah i think it's important to mention i'm glad you did and i think it's really important that you mention that the cullens are pale and white so twilight has re-emerged in popular culture at least to some section of it in the last year because stephanie meyer uh, released a book called Midnight Sun in August 2020, which is the events of Twilight from Edward's perspective. Mm -hmm. It was not well-reviewed. Uh, <laughs> it somehow adds another, like, 140-odd pages to the events of Twilight. <sighs> but it has, I think, in many ways, reignited a discussion of Twilight for people who read and engaged with the fandom about, you know, 10 or so years ago, saying— Okay, well, what do we really take away from it? So you're seeing more discussion about indigenous cultures, which I think is really important and I think is really great. And I've seen much more discussion of the character of Laurent, who is notably the only main black actor in the film. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm going to pull from an interview that Catherine Hardwick, the director of Twilight, gave in 2018. Uh, she was saying that 
she believed that the cast could be much more diverse. She could hire from all kinds of different backgrounds, you know, especially for the Cullens, there's no reason for them to be all white, despite Stephanie Myers describing them all as quite pale. She could kind of play around with that and have a bit of subjectivity as a filmmaker. So she's criticizing her own... So what she's saying is, and what she revealed in this interview in 2018, was that Stephanie Myers, the author, rejected that. Okay. And said, nope, they're pale, therefore they're white. Yeah. That's how we do it. The only notable black actor, well, there's kind of two, but the main one is Laurent, Mm-hmm. One of the kind of bad vampires, but he also kind of helps the Cullens. Yeah. And he's played by a black actor by the name of Eddie Gathagi. And apparently, according to Hardwick, Stephanie Myers was okay with Gathagi's casting because he was playing an antagonist vampire. So oh. it was okay to have a black actor uh-huh. play an antagonist vampire. The other black actor that I pulled from this film was Bella's seemingly friend who almost hits her with the car. Yes. He's depicted as very reckless and immature. He's also someone that I recall him like throwing candy at her to get her attention. Yeah, earlier. and even when they're in the hospital and she's, you know, getting treated and they meet Carlisle for the first time, he's yeah. apologizing to her. And Charlie just basically says, I'm going to take your fucking license. Goodbye. Yeah, yeah. And criminal. And I think this is where we see a tension between Twilight as an authorial piece mm-hmm. and then Catherine Hardwick in her own words saying, I actually wanted to make it more diverse. I wanted to invite other people into this conversation and create something that was reflective of the real world. And the author trumped me. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't do that. And I think if I had been in that position and I wanted to do something and I wasn't allowed to, a few years later, I'd probably talk some shit as well. (laughs) You know, to be really honest, because when you have a piece of culture like this, Mm -hmm. you have the opportunity to aid representation in ways that are really powerful. And to deny that is really problematic. Now, Stephanie Myers has, you know, gone on record saying, you know, this came to me in a dream. This is all based on her fantasies and and, and all of these things. And at a certain point, as an author, you have to let your creations go, Mm -hmm. I feel. I mean, to me, this has kind of been my journey with Twilight over the last couple weeks and and not to be a bit of a Scooby-Doo ending, I thought the villain was going to be internalized misogyny. <laughs> but really, the villain is white supremacy and racism. Yeah. I mean, maybe there'll be a movie adaptation of Midnight Sun and I mean, Catherine Hardwick will fix it all. I mean, jinkies, Edward. <laughs> I have one more franchise I want to talk about before we wrap this up. Okay. And this is something that has apparently emerged in the fertile soil, the soil that is comprised of the unrealized fantasies. Was it a film we went to see as part of the Drunk Feminist film series? It sure was, Alex. Let's tell everyone about it. Fifty Shades of Grey was originally Twilight fanfic, but takes these problematic elements even further. Emotional abuse and stalking become BDSM abuse, softcore porn for middle-aged, sex-starved moms who secretly fantasize about being whisked away by a rich white guy and being used as his sex slave. 
And that is my definition in very broad strokes, the same broad strokes that we have used to define and malign Twilight. It's icky. It's problematic. It's almost a challenge to take a progressive view of these things. But the fact of the matter is that there are needs that are being unmet by these populations outside of these problematic narratives. And the problem is not these narratives. It's the fact that it's all we've got. Do you know I've actually read Fifty Shades of Grey? I did not know that. Years ago. Before we saw the movie? Yeah. And I read it because my boss at the time, who's a woman in her 60s, read it and thought it was really feminist. Okay. And passed it on to me to read because she knew I was a burgeoning feminist and wanted to. Check this out. Yeah. And she and I had a talk afterwards that I probably initiated that I don't know if I would still initiate to this day, but it was very much of a, like, Anastasia Steele. She should have a life outside of this man, no? She sure should. And Bella should have. And she should have discovered love on a different plane and discovered pleasure on a different plane. I feel like these two franchises operate in a weird dimensional parallel. And um, again, we're deviating even further from the horror genre, so I don't want to spend too, too much time on it. But I think my point is that, again, there are unmet needs of this population, and when things come out that meet those needs that are problematic, they are maligned as pure trash, and that only perpetuates the problem. Yeah. Great. (laughs) Fixed it. (laughs) Done. Solved it. (laughs) Dear reader, that's a, a throwback to Jane Eyre. Oh, don't worry. Uh, dear listener, we have not solved anything, except I hope to show you that we can hold multiple beliefs within our mind. I am so grateful for this exercise, if we want to call it that for ourselves, of having done Twilight because I engaged with content I never normally would have. I came away with some ideas that I had reaffirmed, some new ideas that I had challenged, and some completely different ideas that I was like, this kind of fanfare has to represent different communities and marginalized cultures much stronger and had an opportunity that failed those communities. And that pisses me off. But I saw myself in Bella. Yeah. I saw her and I saw me and... And other people are as well. And that's uh, it's worthy of a conversation. I think so. You can't get away from, like, you know, billion-dollar franchise and not talk about it. No. And I think we can acknowledge that this is maybe a bit of a blind spot within the horror community and that it's okay to engage with it. It's okay to like it. It's okay to be critical of it. But understand that there's so many people invested in this for so many different ways. And that's important. And I think we can hold, as we said earlier, as humans, we are fortunate enough to hold multiple truths within our mind at the same time. And it is up to us to be critical and to accept what we can get from it, but also to demand more in the next iteration. Mm -hmm. So the next go-around of a fantasy horror love story, let's hope for more. Let's ask ask for more. Let's write more. If you're out there and you're thinking, I want to write this and make it inclusive and sexy and passionate, then do it. Do it. Let's fucking see it. I'm ready for it. 
the next generation of teens is ready for it, that's for sure. Opinions about Twilight are like assholes. Everyone has one and a lot of them are full of shit. And I really relish this opportunity to go into um, an unfairly maligned franchise and come out of it, you know, we're not validating it, we're not glorifying it. It's problematic, but we're discussing it on its own terms. And, and, and I will say, having watched the other films, Twilight, the first film, I find to be quite a good film, mm -hmm. despite all the problems and all the things we mentioned. The rest of the films feel very bloated, feel really like fan service y. And I think that goes to the fan culture kind of overtaking the artistic merit. Right. And it's like sometimes you need a filmmaker to edit what the hell you're going to put out. Yeah. So, yeah. But next month. Ha! It's time to do your homework, folks. And Ugh. your homework for next month is going to be the Dean's Choice from our Dean Patreon tier. This was selected by the Dean, which is a special privilege. Whoever takes the Dean tier gets to choose an episode and we have to do it. So our dean for this pick was Andrew. And thank you so much, Andrew, for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. Now, Andrew actually put forward an idea that involved a film that was released really recently. And mm -hmm. we can't quite do it on the show. Mm -hmm. However, it's a great idea. So I think we're going to do it really soon because a couple other people have brought it up to us. So put a pin in it. Hazard your guesses. You know, place your bets. However, Andrew, in his infinite wisdom said, if we can't do that, and I know you guys have to wait a little while, I would love to pass on my pick to our friends at the Evolution of Horror podcast. So that is Mike and Mary. And I've been fortunate enough to be a guest on the Evolution of Horror. Andrea, no? I haven't. Well, maybe Evolution of Horror. Ask Andrea to be part of something. Mike is the nicest guy. Absolutely love them and reached out to them and said, all right, you got to pick something for us to do. So if you thought Twilight was meh, we're going to do a 180, yeah. the total fucking 180, and do an episode we have been asked so many times to do. This is the episode multiple people have asked for. We are going to do 1981's Possession, uh, directed by Andre Zublowski. Oh, yeah. Are we ever? That's coming at you in April. So do your homework, eat your Wheaties, keep sparkling. Till next time. Office hours are closed.